You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Hey, good morning, Redeemer. Uh, my name is Keenan Harris, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Um, and I'm excited to be with you. Happy New Year, um, first Sunday of the year. And before we get into that text, <clears throat> even as a follow-up to go over the month, I want to show you this picture um, that a handful of us got to go to uh, got to go overseas um, this past week, where all almost all I would say probably about ninety ninety five percent of all of Redeemer's goers met in one place for a week, and so this is them, um, and it was just a really really awesome and encouraging week. That the hope of that week was for care for our goers, but also just rest and relaxation um, and encouragement for them, and so. I wanted to show their picture because these are of, of us, from us, that even if you don't know them, um, that these are our people. And it was just really encouraging to me to have conversations with them and hear just what, what all they're navigating. What, first of all, what God is doing through them, um, but also just navigating you know, normal stuff like parenting and marriage and pregnancy and team dynamics, but also learning language and loneliness and all these things. And so... Um, I want to show this because a tendency for them is going to is going to be to feel forgotten, to feel alone, and they're not forgotten by by us, but for sure by God. And so, if you see a face up there that you recognize, even right now, send them a text thinking of you, missing you. Uh, I think that would go a long way. It's incredible um, what God is doing through them and love all of them. So, um, awesome. Well, I'm excited to open up God's Word as you see. Um, we're not back in 1 Corinthians yet. That will be next week, okay? We're going to be picking back what we've been preaching this academic school year through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to do one more standalone sermon. And so as I was thinking about what to preach about this morning, I just decided to do something that has been personally and devotionally impactful for me. That a couple weeks, or I would say a couple months ago, was a couple things happened. First of all, I was reading a book um, called Raising Emotionally Strong Boys by David Thomas. He's a LPC and a Christian, and he's talking about the way that boys typically respond to difficult circumstances and sin. And at the same time, I was devotionally reading um, Genesis 3 and was stunned to see the similarities that, yes, there might be things that boys kind of uniquely, how they might respond to difficult circumstances and sin, but actually, I think it's how all of us, according to Genesis 3, what we've inherited, how we respond to difficult circumstances and sin, and it has created a ton of like introspection um, and reflection on, with me, and so I wanted to share that, and so that's where I want to start. Um, that when you are confronted with your own sin, um, how do you respond to that? Or when you're just confronted with circumstances and situations that don't go according to plan, how do you respond? And this is going to be an awesome beginning of New Year sermon, talking about sin, but we're going to do it anyway, okay? Um, And I think what I want to walk through is that the way that you, there might be some uniqueness to our personalities on how we respond, but I think all of us as a whole have a lot of common ways that we respond because we've inherited it from Adam and Eve in the garden. And so I want to just walk through this passage. I want to pick up in Genesis 3 verse 1 and it says this, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, so the answer here is yes, he did actually say that, that God creates the world and everything is good, that there's this beautiful refrain as you go through the days of creation, at the end of every single day, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, and then you get to day six and there's a change in the refrain. God adds, it was very good. Why? Well, that's when he created humanity. That human beings are the pinnacle of creation, not because we're awesome or anything like that, but because we bear his image and we are the crown jewel of his creation, that we bear his image, we reflect his nature, and this completes his creation. He declares that creation is very good, that Adam and Eve, they were the first humans, that they had a perfect relationship with God and with each other. That they walked with God, they talked with God, they laughed with God, they loved God. And that is so hard for us to imagine. No barriers in that relationship there. And God does give them a command. In the chapter before, Genesis 2, he says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God tells them, essentially, Look, I provided for you plenty. You can take, you can have, you can eat. Every tree of the garden is accessible to you, but this tree right here, it belongs to me that I'm still your authority. You need to be in submission to me to show me that you love me. You need to obey me and trust me that this tree belongs to me. And so that's the right answer. Let's look at how Eve responds. Verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she answers correctly, right? And then verse four, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So she responds correctly, but then the serpent deceives, he twists, and ultimately, what's the temptation? What's the temptation here that the serpent is trying to deceive here? Is it the fruit in and of itself? No. There's no mention of like the amazing taste of it or anything like that. The temptation is autonomy. He says, hey, look, if you eat of it, you will be like God. And so this is foundational for you and I to understand that the core temptation behind every single sin that you and I commit or we're tempted to commit is that we, the temptation is, is to not need God to have autonomy, that we want to be God. That none of us, we don't like to be in submission to anybody or anything. We want to make our own rules. We want to gratify our own desires. We want to determine what's best for us and what we want. Um, And this is what Satan taps into here. It taps into here. He's saying, essentially what he's saying is, look, God's withholding from you. You don't need him. That if you eat of it, you can be like him and have this separation from him. You can essentially have your own sense of autonomy and do what you want and you can be like him. And can you relate to this? That I think so much of my unhappiness, discontentment, my sins, my worries, my stress 
comes from focusing on the things that I do not have to the neglect of all that God has given me. That think back, maybe you don't do like an end-of-year reflection, or maybe you do, but if you th- thought back on how 2023 went, if you're anything like me, your first area to look at is where things didn't go according to plan, or what you felt you were missing out on, or where you fell short, or things that didn't go your way, that you have this laundry list of how terrible um, 2023 was, instead of focusing on all that God did do, and his faithfulness, and his goodness, and his graciousness towards me and my family. That we have this tendency, just like Adam and Eve here, that the, the, the serpent moves their eyes to what God is withholding from them to the neglect of every fruit, every tree they have access to, yet this one. And that's what he brings them to because they have this desire to be like God. That we have this belief that God is keeping good, deserving things from us. And so what happens? Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." Okay, so before we put all the blame on Eve here, we need to understand that Adam was there in the midst of this. It says, quote, he was with her, passively allowing the temptation to happen and actively participating in the rebellion against God's command. And immediately, what's their response to sin? Shame. And I want to bring up the first slide here, that the first response that we have to sin might be shame. Just like God promised, eating the fruit would give them an understanding of good and evil. And sure enough, it was revealed to them that they are evil. They had this understanding brought before their eyes of good and evil, and they're evil. And when they realize this, they immediately feel shame. Now, to be clear, there are every single emotion that you and I experience is given to us and designed by God. Every single emotion you and I feel and experience are designed by God and they're meant to be these dashboard indicators to draw us towards God to experience him in a unique and different way. That emotions in and of themselves are not sinful. So shame here is even created by God, meant to be designed by God to move Adam and Eve towards God. But what they feel is they feel this like toxic type of shame where it results in this feeling bad about who you are, not just what you've done, but feeling bad about who you are. And they create these fig leaf coverings from God and hide from God. And look, we're no different, right? That what I love about children is that they just like externally declare what internally all of us are feeling, right? That they don't have like the, you know, life experience or the awareness or the development or even just, you know, the clues to know what's appropriate to say and what's not, which I actually love. Um, But we're all internally feeling the same things that children just kind of declare externally. That maybe you've parented a child or worked with a child that when they get in trouble, their first response is, I'm the worst, 
Like everybody hates me. Or maybe it's not even a sin thing, but they're trying to learn a musical instrument. They're trying to do homework. They're trying to learn a new sport. And they get frustrated and they yell out, I'm terrible. I'll never get this. I'm bad at everything. And you're just looking at them thinking like, bud, like how do we get from a math problem to you're just terrible and no one likes you, right? Maybe you feel that way about math too. But um, like that you have this extreme feeling of you're aware of your insufficiencies and it results in shame of I'm the worst. That all of us, some of us, we are acutely aware of our sinfulness and even our insufficiencies and our response to those things is defeatism and self-deprecation. That for some of us, the worst opinion in the world of you is from you. That for some of us in this room, we have the worst opinion of ourselves more than anybody else in the world. That it's self-deprecation, it's defeatism, that when you're aware of sin and when you're aware of your insufficiencies, you live in this shame area. That for others of us, that when we experience sin and we experience these insufficiencies, we create these fig leaf coverings to cover that sin. That sure, we're not talking about, you know, the newest brand of like Lululemon fig leaves, right? What we're talking about here is that you're aware of your sin, but you create these different forms to cover those things. That maybe you say something like, yeah, I know I struggle with blank, but at least I'm excellent or at least I'm doing well here. That at least I have this to cover these insufficiencies. Maybe it's financial success. Maybe it's parenting style. Maybe it's even like spiritual religious practices. Maybe it's your physical appearance and fitness. That what is your go-to, what is your fallback kind of covering for yourself that, yeah, I know I struggle with this, but at least I have this. Or for some of us, When we feel and experience shame, we just conceal. That like Adam and Eve hid from God, we hide from everybody around us. We're unwilling to confront and address the sin in our life and the shortcomings, so we keep everybody at arm's length that we want to be the only one that's aware of our sin and shortcomings, and we are unwilling to enter into any form of like accountable relationship. And notice, do any of these responses move us towards change? Do any of these responses move us towards God? And so I'm curious that when you experience shame as a result of your sin and insufficiencies, how do you respond to that? Is it defeatism and self-deprecation? Is it creating these false coverings? Is it concealing and hiding? Which one is it? Let's keep going. So, So they experience shame, and when that doesn't work, look at what they do. So verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Which is rhetorical, by the way. We'll get to that. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So when the shame response doesn't work, um, they resort to blame. Uh, That's the second response that you and I deal with. Look at the blame game that happens here, okay? So Adam, so God goes to Adam, and Adam basically says, but, 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 okay, listen, hear me out, God. The woman you gave me, so let's pause there, okay? Did he actually blame God? 
For sure he did, right? That basically he's saying, look, everything was good when it was just you and me kicking it, God. Like everything was good. It was your idea. You're the one that said it's not good for man to be alone. I didn't come asking for a friend. I didn't come asking for you to create. This was your design, your idea, the woman you gave me. Then, then if it's not your fault, it's her fault that she's the one who took of the fruit and gave it to me. She did it first. You heard that before as parents, right? Like you've heard that before. And so he goes into this and then, he, then God turns to Eve and she says, well, listen, hear me out. The, the serpent tricked me, deceived me. That immediately blame game happens here. That, and we're no different. That when, when we're confronted with our sin and shortcomings, one of our knee-jerk reactions is to blame others or blame circumstances. That our default posture is that it's never our fault. And if you don't believe me, I want you to think back to the last time you had any for, form of confrontation or even just feedback where someone came to you about something that either hurt them or that you did wrong did you just like creed arms wide open, say thank you for that feedback? I really appreciate that. Or I love you telling me that I hurt your feelings there, right? No, your first reaction is to blame and to justify and say, yeah, but you did this. Or yeah, but you don't know the circumstance around it. That maybe you say things like, sure, I know I'm short-tempered and I know I shouldn't be, but... These kids are just always acting a fool. You would be the same if you knew the way that they acted and the way that they disrespected me. That, yeah, I know I'm not meant to to lash out in anger, but they're the ones that caused me to do it. Or maybe you say things like, sure, I know I need to get my sexual sin under control, but I'm lonely. That if God would just give me a spouse or if God would just give me community and friendship, then I wouldn't go there. That you don't think about blaming God, but essentially you are. Or sure, I need to be a more present husband and father, but I'm working so much and I'm providing for other ways. I may not be providing my presence, but my job is demanding and I need to provide. That you go through these laundry lists of reasons why you are the way that you are. And look, here's the thing. Almost every single thing that we resort to for blame has a kernel of truth in it that maybe you're tempted to blame your family of origin. And maybe there is for sure pain in there. Maybe there is hurt in there. But you keep falling back to, I am the way that I am because of this. And I'm okay with acting out in this way because of what I've been through. That you have these blame things that every single thing that you resort to probably has this kernel of truth of the reason why you're doing that. And again, maybe you're so bold to where you directly blame God. I know and I admit that I have. That God... If only life were easier for us, then I would do this. Yeah, God, I know I should be reading my Bible. I should be praying more, but you're the one that's giving me all these demands. You're the one that's put me in this life circumstance. That we are tempted to blame others, circumstances, or God. And so here's where I want to go. That before I get to how we should respond to sin sin, sin in our lives, let's look at how God responds to sin in our lives. The first thing that I need to point out is in response to their sin, God pursues. God initiates relationship. God initiates grace. Notice in the narrative, God goes looking for them. He seeks them out. He pursues them. When he says, hey, where are you? This is for sure rhetorical. 
He knows where they are. It's not like they jumped out and shocked him and surprised him and scared him. Like he knew where they were. Like he's inviting them into relationship with him. Adam, where are you at? Where are you? Like he's seeking them out. He's pursuing them. And listen, this is the first sin in the history of humanity. And this is how he responds. He initiates. He pursues. His default posture is always to extend mercy, to pursue. And many of us think that God is fed up with us or that he's just passive aggressive towards us and avoids us when we sin against him. But that's not true. That the cross is evidence for that. Now, to be clear, there's always consequences for our sin. Always. And he does rebuke their sin, and it results in a fallen world, and it results in them being banished from the garden. But in the midst of this rebuke to Adam, Eve, and the serpent, he provides some glimmers of hope. Look at Genesis 3, 15. So while he's rebuking the serpent, look at what he says here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That this language here, it might be a bit confusing, but what he's doing right here is he's foreshadowing Jesus. That the ultimate offspring of Eve being Jesus, that he's saying that there's going to be an offspring that will come that will be Jesus and he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel, which is worse right? Having your head crushed or your heel bruised, right? That what he's saying is Jesus is going to come and through his death and resurrection, he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he's not going to come out unscathed, that it's going to bruise him. It's going to kill him. It's going to result in his death. But ultimately through his resurrection, he's going to defeat sin and death. Beautiful. All the way from the garden, this was plan A. This wasn't plan B. This was going to be God's response to sin is that he knew he was going to send Jesus to ultimately defeat sin and death. But then also, not only does he initiate and pursue us, something has slipped in here that maybe we don't notice. Look at Genesis 3.21. So after he rebukes them and gives them their punishments, he says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That God, that's in verse 21, God, before banishing them, he recognizes the insufficiencies of their fig leaf coverings. That yeah, it's going to result in a punishment. It's going to result in separation. That some of us think that God's posture towards us is get out and slam the door behind us and get out of my face. That's not it. He takes them under his arm. He creates more sufficient coverings for them and he sends them out. There's still this graciousness that yes, it results in the death of an animal, but he provides more sufficient coverings for them. And do you see the parallels here between that and Jesus? That killing an animal to provide more sufficient coverings for their shame, killing Jesus to take our shame. He's going to offload all of the shame that our sin brings on Jesus, take that to the grave, and bring new life in his resurrection. That consider the parallel that God's seeing the insufficiencies of our financial success fig leaf coverings, or our physical appearance fig leaf coverings, or our whatever fig leaf coverings. It's never enough to cover. He provides a covering for us by sending Jesus to take our shame through his death and resurrection. I want you to look at a passage in Romans 5. Um, And what I want you to see here, it's a little bit long, but as we read through this, I want you to notice what these two men, Adam and Jesus, 
That what Paul is doing here is what came through Adam and what came through Jesus. And I want you to notice the differences here that Paul plays out here. Romans 5, beginning in 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, there's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So through Adam came death and trespass, but through Jesus came the grace of God and the free gift that abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That he goes on to say, but listen, what Romans 5 is saying is that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus, and he, but he failed. That through Adam's disobedience, we've inherited the sinful nature. We've inherited a fallen world. We've inherited the tendency to blame, the tendency to feel shame. However, through Jesus' obedience, we are made righteousness. That our shame is removed and our need for blame shifting is taken away. And we can be moved to repentance. We can be moved to obedience. And this is the final slide that I want to show. That every single time that you and I experience sin, every single time that you and I experience shortcomings, we have one of three responses that we can show. It can be either blame, it can be shame, or this third slide that will be on the screen is we can take responsibility and we can turn from our sin. And here's the thing that you and I need to understand. That the only way for us to respond in responsibility and repentance in a sustainable and transformative way is by this motivation of seeing God's initiating pursuit of us, to see God's graciousness towards us, to see God's provision of righteousness. That's the only way that we can do this in a sustainable way. So if you're on the shame side of this, here's what this means. That if your shame response is defeatism and self-deprecation, listen, your guilt and your shame has been defeated. God desires you. He is pursuing you. He wants you. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter. He declares you righteous because of the grace of Jesus. That you can own your sin. You can confess it to him and come to him in confidence. That listen, For me, I tend to live on this shame side. Not that I never blame. You can ask, you know, friends and my wife. But, like, I tend to live on this shame side. And let's even take an area that may not even be like this, like, sin struggle. But for me, there's this constant refrain in the back of my head of, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not a good enough father. You're not a good enough husband. You're not a good enough worker. You're not a good enough friend. And that's a refrain, and I believe it. And I live in this area of shame, of insufficiencies. And I can point to where I'm not enough, where I'm failing as a husband, where I'm even sinning as a father, where I'm even sinning and live in this shame area. And that's exactly where the enemy wants me to live. But here, God pursues me. And he says, you're right. 
You do fail as a husband. You're right. You do fail as a father. You're right. You do have shortcomings in your profession, yet I still want you. I still pursue you. Own the areas of shortcoming and turn from them in confidence to receive mercy and to receive help that I'm still with you in the midst of all of that. that if, or if your shame response is to create these fig leaf coverings for yourself, it's a hamster wheel. It's never going to be enough. It's always one thing after another that you're trying to cover your shame with. Your righteousness and your covering only comes through the work of Jesus. So you can own your sin and shortcomings, confess it to him, and realize that your right standing and your righteousness only comes because of the perfect work of Jesus. Or if your shame response is to conceal and hide, God already knows. God already knows. That there's people in this room right now that they have sin in their life, that there's not a single soul in this room or in the world that knows what you're doing and you're concealing and you're hiding. God already knows. And he's saying, hey, where are you? Not because he doesn't know where you are, but he's trying to invite you out. Don't hide in your shame. Come out. Come to me. Come to the people of God. Confess it to me. Own it. Confess it to the people of God. That listen, there have been so many times, whether it's just life struggles that I've concealed or even sin, that bringing it to God first, obviously, is important. But when I bring it to the people of God and I see their graciousness towards me, speaking truth, yes, but also acceptance, not of what I'm doing, but who I am, that that becomes this physical embodiment of God's response to me. That you don't have to stay in this shame. You are loved. You are wanted. You are desired by God. He's pursuing you. Or, if you're on the blame side of this, here's what this means. That your justification does not come from blaming it on circumstances, blaming it on others, or on God. You can be wrong. You can be wrong. And you can own that because Jesus took your blame. He took it. He committed no sin. There was no fault in him. Yet he took all of that so that you could be accepted by God through faith in Jesus. So you can hurt people's feelings and receive that feedback and say, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. And there doesn't have to be a but at the end of that sentence, but you did this. It can be, you're right. I'm sorry. I'll do better. How can I do better next time? That you can take the blame knowing that ultimately Jesus took the blame. Own your sin, own your shortcomings, and rather than blaming on others or on circumstances, ask for forgiveness and repent. That maybe for some of you, the response to this sermon is on the drive home, you can apologize hey, I blamed you for something that wasn't your fault. I blamed you or I blamed our circumstance for something that wasn't your fault and I need to own that because of, again, the grace of Jesus. Not to earn God's favor, but because through faith in Jesus you have. And listen, if you're not a Christian here in here, we're so glad that you're here. And what, the way that you enter into this relationship with God is you lay down your arms that you recognize that you do feel shame, you have a tendency to blame, but that through faith in Jesus you can have access to him, that he is pursuing you, he is coming after you. 
That we have access to a God whose default posture towards us has always been to extend mercy and to pursue us with grace and to take our guilt and to take our shame. So let's walk in obedience to that truth. Let's pray. God, we come before you. And my prayer this morning um, is that we would experience your pursuit of us. That you know everything. That there is nothing that is not within your sight, yet you still love us, you still want us. And so God, may we repent of our tendency to live in shame. Repent of our tendency to blame others. Own the things that we need to own. And turn in faith and repentance to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.